0: We're glad you're here if you're visiting with us tonight. We are in a series entitled Shalom, which is a Hebrew word that means peace. And and, and I believe this is central to the Christmas story. It's one of the reasons why I'm excited is we were praying for this sermon series at the beginning of the year where things were going to fall that I felt led to drop this at Christmas. And because it's just, it's at the beginning of the Christmas story. Can we agree on that? That when the angels... Proclaimed to the shepherds that Jesus was born, they said, peace on earth, shalom, and goodwill toward mankind. Shalom is part of the promise of Jesus to us. Then in John 14, we have this moment. It's it's at the end of Jesus' life, and, and Jesus says to his disciples, but he's also saying it to us, hey, my peace, my shalom. I'm gonna give to you. Can you imagine the kind of peace that Jesus had? And he says to you and I, I, I want to give you this gift. And maybe for some of you this Christmas, it's going to be one of the greatest gifts that you receive. And so in this series, we've been exploring what is shalom and and how, how, if it's been elusive for us, how can we begin to reach for it? And so we've been teaching this concept, the principle of portion, meaning that we're never going to have this sense of peace at the center and the core of who we are until we're willing and ready to accept the things in life we cannot change. It's, it's the principle of portion. There are things that have been portioned to us that are beyond our control. And how that principle affects the four primary relationships in this life. My relationship with God, my relationship with myself, my relationship with others, and my relationship with creation. This is our definition. It is a deep sense of well-being and goodness that is anchored in Christ a deep sense of well-being and goodness that is anchored in Christ, meaning that it's not anchored in my circumstance. So no matter what my situation is, I can still have a sense of shalom because my shalom is connected to Jesus and not what's happening around me. And if I ever feel like I'm drifting from my center, from my peace because of my circumstance, right? Because we don't want to be emotionally inauthentic. There are times where we've got to emote, but the peace should be what we always find ourselves coming back to. And so tonight's message, we're going to be spending a lot of time in Philippians chapter 4 because it is one of the chapters in the Bible that takes shalom and the peace that Jesus promises is center to the entire text. What we're going to see tonight is that Paul points to this promise. Then he tells us a process that we can put into practice when we find ourselves in conflict because when we are offended by or let me when i am offended by someone i know you've never been offended by someone right when i'm offended by someone it tends to displace my sense of peace because human nature we have this thing called hyperfocus we have this thing called obsessive thought and when we're offended by someone, when we're in conflict with someone, it tends to occupy all of our thoughts and we find ourselves drifting further and further away from our peace. Paul gives us a process to work our way back to our center. And then he ends up giving us a measure so that we can know that we're getting there. Philippians 1 reads this way It says, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stay true to the Lord. I love you and long to see you, dear friends, for you are my joy and the crown i receive for my work. Now this sounds like Paul opening the letter but it's really the final chapter of the letter. And why and the reason why i think Paul returns to these sentiments of affection is because he's getting ready to challenge them. Now we have to remember these are Paul's friends. These aren't strangers. On Paul's second missionary journey, he traveled to the city of Philippi. He started a church there. And so this letter is being written to that church. In fact, all of these letters that Paul wrote, when they received them, they read them out loud in the congregation, which you're going to see in just a minute how challenging that is because in some of the letters, Paul gives accolades to people publicly. Now We like, our, we like some accolades, do we not? some of the letters, challenge people for things that they are doing that they shouldn't be doing. Can you imagine? You're in the church. A letter's going to be read, and you know what you're hoping for. I hope I make one of Paul's lists. How great I'm doing. But you're on this list over here, right? Which was the case for these two ladies. Listen to this. Now, I appeal to Euodia and Sentici. If you're pregnant and you're looking for a name for a daughter, I would not recommend either of these two. I appeal to you, Euodia and Sintici, please, because you belong to the Lord. This letter is being read aloud in the church. These two ladies are probably there and probably not sitting next to each other. Settle your disagreement. And I ask you, my true partner, to help these two women. Now, scholars disagree on who the true partner is. Some think it could be Luke. It could be another companion that Paul traveled with that is still there, and he's appealing to them to get involved. But I like this, this interpretation better. I think Paul is speaking to everybody in the entire congregation. I think he's writing this letter as if to say, you, whoever you are, If you are a part of this church family, you have a responsibility for its health. You have a responsibility for its welfare. Don't just wait for somebody else to get involved. Help these women reconcile to you, my true partner, to help these two women. For they worked hard with me in telling others the good news. They worked along with, right? We know that it's Clement, but we know that they called him Clem. They had to. They had to. Right? Along with Clem and the rest of my co workers whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Paul's saying the stakes are high. There's gonna be conflict, there's gonna be disagreement, but we can't camp there. We can't stay there. We must always move towards reconciliation. Because if we don't move towards reconciliation, then we're not moving back towards peace. Now you might say, well, Fred, he's not talked about peace yet. I know, but he gets there. Let's go to the next slide. Always be joy, always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. Let everyone see that you're considerate in all that you do. Remember the Lord is coming soon. Let's go to the next one. Here it comes. So don't worry about anything. Now Philippians 4, there are a lot of great verses in Philippians 4. If you're familiar with the Bible if you've been around scripture for any amount of time you know that there's some there's just some treasures in here there's some gems in here and what happens so often with scripture if there are certain verses that become so popularized that they are only ever talked about by themselves then we lose some of the truth that I think the Holy Spirit intended in their context. I'm not saying they're being used out of context because oftentimes verses in the Bible by themselves have great meaning that apply to different parts of our lives beyond the context. But if we never put it back in its context and read it for the whole thing, we lose some of the treasure that the Holy Spirit intended us to find. And I think that happens a lot with this chapter. He says, so don't worry about anything. And another translation renders it, don't be anxious about anything. Instead, pray about everything, tell God what you need, and thank him for all he has done. And then you will experience God's shalom. Right? Paul's saying, hey, there's a peace that we should carry in our hearts. There's a deep sense of well-being and goodness that's anchored in Christ that should be our center. And when we are in conflict with each other, it causes us to constantly drift from that peace, then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. Right, so we know he's not just talking about a superficial contentment. He's talking about something that is supernatural, a peace that doesn't even make sense given what we might be going through. Anything we can understand, his peace will guard your hearts, come on, and minds. That's why we say it's a, it's a deep sense. It's a deep sense of well-being and goodness anchored in Christ and our heart and our mind as you live in Christ Jesus. I think Paul's saying to you, Odia, and to Sintichi and the whole church, hey, when you're in a conflict with someone, you're going to drift away from peace. If you're upset with someone, if you're offended by someone. But I think Paul's saying here, right, he says, hey, don't worry about these things. Don't be anxious about everything. He's saying, If you're in a conflict with someone, make sure that you spend just as much time praying about it as you do obsessing over it. He's, he's, he's saying to them, if, if you're not spending just as much time in prayer about how you feel and about what's happening, right, and you're only hyper-focusing on what this person said or didn't say or did or didn't do, then you will find yourself susceptible to narratives that might not even be true. So he says, if you're feeling anxious, especially in conflict, Make sure you put in some time praying, talking to God about why you're upset, talking to God about why you're angry, talking to God about that other person. One of the reasons why people gossip is because something inside of us compels us to talk about it, which is a healthy thing. Gossip is the poor expression and response to the God-given desire to talk about how we feel in a conversation that just should be between him and us. And when we take those concerns to him, Paul says, hey, you're gonna find yourself drifting back to your center. Let's go to the next verse. Now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. This is one thing I always try to remind people the Bible is divinely inspired, the subheadings are not. Right? The Bible's divinely inspired, but the subheadings is some scholar or academic person's belief that maybe the text is shifting gears, and I don't think it's shifting gears here. In most of my Bibles, there's a subheading here with the implication is that now Paul is moving on to a different topic. I like to think, especially when I'm reading this chapter, because we believe the Bible is divinely inspired, that as Paul was writing these words, and the Holy Spirit was just whispering in his ear and these words began to flow through his heart and he began to put this on paper. Or Sometimes he dictated these letters to a scribe and they would be writing for him on his behalf. I get this sense that Paul was about ready to pivot to something else. And then he feels that pause in his heart by the Holy Spirit saying, hey, there's more that we need to give them to help them. See, when he says one final thing, I don't think he means, I want to tell you one more final thing before I wrap up this letter. I think he's saying, I need to tell you something else about conflict. That, that there is a promise of peace that is a prize to us that's called shalom that should be at our center and that when we give ourselves to prayer, sometimes, not because prayer is ineffectual or God is not able, it's because we are imperfect. And sometimes we find ourselves, it's just not enough. And we're stuck in the offense that we carry in our heart. And so the Holy Spirit says to Paul, let's give him a list. Paul likes himself some lists, does he not? All throughout his epistles, you see him giving list after list after list. And if we're not careful, I think what we will do is we will, as I often have early on, I will read this list as this poetic grouping of synonyms that all mean the same thing, but I don't think that it does. I think the Holy Spirit inspired every word. I think he inspired the order of the words. And I think he was giving us one of the most undiscovered processes for conflict resolution that we will ever find. He says, whatsoever things are true. Did you know that husbands sometimes can be jerks. Yeah. Now, you might say, Fred, I don't know if you should pick on husbands. And I would say to you, well, I am one. And you might say, are you saying you're a husband or a jerk? And my answer to that is yes. Let's just use my own life as an example. Sometimes... I'm insensitive. Sometimes I'm a jerk. Sometimes I'm uncaring. And so in those moments, Vanessa has to be willing to get into this bin. See, see, part of the reason why I'm doing the illustration this way is that you have to be willing to boundary yourself with your thoughts if you're going to move towards reconciliation and the restoration of your peace so, I think what Paul's giving us here with these words are a sequential steps in a process that we boundary ourselves with so we can end up on the other end, reconciled to the person, and back in a place of shalom, not just with ourselves, but to give that gift to the other person. And the question of is it true has to be where we start. Because when we're upset, there's all kinds of false narratives that want to work their way in. right? So Vanessa, she has to be willing to ask some hard questions about me. Is he, is, is he really being a jerk? Or is, is, is he hurt? Is something bothering him? right? Just if you're newly married, we, if, if, if you're the wife, we need you to pry. Can, can we acknowledge that? Most men, we do not do a good job of talking about how we're feeling on the inside, especially when we're broken. And, and so, so you, you've got to ask yourself the question, is he being a jerk because he is a jerk? Because I know he can be, right? Or is he being a jerk because he's hurt? Because his, something's happened in his life and I have the privilege to help him work through that. If you're not careful, false narratives will enter in. You, 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 I'm being a jerk, thoughts that might come to Vanessa. He doesn't like me anymore. I'm not enough for him anymore, right? He's not attracted to me anymore. Are you with me? Can we be honest with each other? There's all kinds of thoughts the devil just backs up like the trash truck. It's beeping as it's coming in and it wants to unload all kinds of lies into our lives. We have to have a truth filter, especially when we're hurt. We have to have a truth filter, it's why, it's why Psalm 1, the whole entire book of Psalms, the, all of them, right, all of them, it starts with this one chapter, Psalm 1, that says, Blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of the sinner, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on it does he meditate both day and night. What does that mean? It means you have to have a truth filter. You have to have a truth filter. You have to be willing to ask yourself, is this true? And let's say, for example, tonight, since we're talking about me, that she's able to come to the conclusion, he is being a jerk. What do I do next? For some of you, you're like, I needed this conversation yesterday. For some of you, you might be thinking, I think Pastor Fred has a camera in our house. Somebody say, I have a nobility responsibility. Hmm, I. The order matters. If you are a devoted follower of Christ, you are a member of the royal family. There's no paparazzi waiting for you outside. When you go to Food Lion and you're checking out, right, there's not a picture of you on the National Enquirer that Betty's having an alien baby. You, you with me? We're, we're not part of a royal family in the sense that we're so important that other people are paying attention to us. We are part of a royal family in the sense that there was an expectation over us. And that is a nobility responsibility. That even when it's true and I'm offended and I have a right to be offended, I have a reason to be offended because somebody else did something that hurt me. Even going back to this with Euodia and Sintichi, it makes me wonder which one of those women were ultimately at fault. And was it true But then whoever is the victim still has a nobility responsibility. That as I respond to that hurt, as I respond to that offense, it is not permission giving to me to violate the character of Christ. See, one of the problems we have in American society is if truth is on our side, we believe that all bets are off. We believe that if I'm right, if it's true, then I have permission to do Whatever I need to do to get my point across, that's American culture, it's not kingdom culture. Because kingdom culture says I have a nobility responsibility that even in my offense, even in my innocence, I have a responsibility to carry the character of Christ. Whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are noble, whatsoever things are right so even if i'm right and even when i say to myself i'm not going to violate my sense of character I, i'm not i'm not going to stoop to someone else's level come on i'm not going to let me draw i'm not going to let them draw me in i'm going to be transcendent i'm going to protect virtue even though i'm upset i have to be willing to take right actions. This, this word in the Greek carries with it some, some context of, of justice. It means that there are right things that I should do, and then there are wrong things that I could do. I have a responsibility to act in a way that is wise. And this, let me give you three here. If you're a husband and a wife, maybe you drove here tonight in a place of conflict, and you're stuck This is what we tell people in premarital counseling. We do a whole session on conflict. We say these three things, that if if you're bothered by your spouse for some reason, no matter how big or how small, make sure these are the three right things you should do. One is that bring it up at a time when you have enough time to talk about it, which means that as you're walking into the office Christmas party and you're coming up to the doorway... You're not supposed to say to your spouse, hey, you've been a jerk to me recently, and we're going to talk about it when we get home. Hey, it's so good to see everybody. Don't do that. Bring it up at a time when you have plenty of time to talk about it. Number two, bring it up in a setting and in a manner that protects the dignity and the privacy of your marriage.